Welcome to the St. Matt's 6pm podcast, where you can listen to sermons from our evening service. Hey Jim, can I get a, um, <laughs> hi, hi, you need a rundown of your clients, can you get that to me? Sure. Yeah. Okay. What's a rundown? We just need that rundown by. As soon as possible. Okay. Just get it right. Yeah. Gotcha. Of course. We're going to dive in to the rundown. I'll be exhausted because it's like a triathlon. Did you want to close this? We'll keep it. Hey, dude. You know what a rundown is? Use it in a sentence. Uh, can you get this rundown for me? Try another sentence. This rundown better be really good. I don't know, but it sounds like the rundown is really important. Charles asked me to do this rundown of all my clients. Why don't you just ask him? No, I can't. It was like hours ago. What have you been doing? Try another sentence. (laughs) That was my favorite TV show. That's The Office. Would recommend. Maybe you have found yourselves in a kind of situation like Jim just found himself in. Uh, maybe you've had a boss uh, that you know he wants something or they, she wants something, but they haven't been very clear about what exactly they want. Or maybe you've had a friend who's been annoyed at you but hasn't explained why. Maybe you've been in a team where not everyone has the same expectations. Maybe you've had to buy a gift to someone, but you just don't know what they would like. Maybe you've had fussy guests over for dinner, but you just don't know what they want to eat. Maybe you've been interested in someone, but they keep giving mixed messages in response. Whatever the relationship, ambiguity is painful. Ambiguity is painful. Not knowing exactly what someone else wants from you can be really hard. It can be confusing, stressful, frustrating, or just scary. I would so much prefer clarity. And when we we hear a Bible reading like the one that Dan just did for us from Leviticus 3, it can sound so bizarre, so dry, so particular. But what we just heard was God being really, really clear with the Israelites about what he wants from them. This is God kindly removing ambiguity, telling them what he wants from them so that they can each worship him with confidence. And we're going to look at the opening chapters of Leviticus today so that we can also learn from this passage, from these these chapters, what God wants from us too. But learning from Leviticus is easier said than done. Because Leviticus wasn't first written for us. It was first written for ancient Israel. So, before we go any further, I just want to clarify some principles of interpretation. I don't know, something like, yeah, let's get into the principles of interpretation. Probably not all of you, so I'll keep it quick. But this is important, because if we get this wrong at this point, we're going to end up with some really bizarre understanding and some bizarre rules for our own lives if we don't get this right. So, principle number one. We aren't supposed to obey everything exactly as it's written in Leviticus. Hear that. We are not supposed to obey everything exactly how it is written in Leviticus because Leviticus wasn't written first fast. 
It was written first as the terms of an agreement, the terms of a covenant between God and ancient Israel. We are not ancient Israel and we don't relate to God through the first covenant. When Jesus died, he died to establish a new covenant, a new agreement between God and anyone who wants to have a relationship with God. That's number one. Number two, even though Leviticus wasn't first written for us, it is supposed to teach us. In 2 Timothy, Paul puts it like this. All scripture, all the Bible, all scripture is God-breathed. It's all from God and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. So the Old Testament was recorded to instruct followers of Jesus. It has timeless truths for us. Principle of interpretation number three. To find these timeless truths, we need to understand the commands and teachings of Leviticus in light of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Jesus says that he came not to get rid of all the Old Testament laws, but he came to fulfill the Old Testament laws. So when we look at Old Testament law, when we look at Leviticus, before we apply it to ourselves, we first have to think about it in light of what Jesus has come and done for us. Now, this will get a lot easier as we do examples through this series, so don't worry if you're not really tracking so far. But keep this in mind. Leviticus is for us, but we have to understand it. We have to put on our Jesus glasses in order to properly understand how it is for us. Let me pray. We'll dive in. Lord God, uh, we thank you so much that you speak to us through all the scripture and that you speak to us through Leviticus. And we pray that you would help us to understand today. You'd get rid of ambiguity so we can understand exactly what you want from us as well. In Jesus' name, amen. First seven chapters of Leviticus describe five different sacrifices the Israelites can make as ways to worship God. And although Dan thought it was a bizarre opening, this is just kind of how it goes. Just jump straight into sacrifices. It can feel like dry reading, and if we don't understand it, it's enough to turn us off from Leviticus right away. So that cliche idea, if you start reading the Bible, you think, great, I'll start at the beginning, I get through Genesis, I get through Exodus, I hit Leviticus, and I just give up. I reckon you probably gave up in Exodus, but that's okay. (laughs) But what's happening here in Leviticus is God being absolutely clear with the Israelites what he wants from them, how they can relate to him. He's getting rid of ambiguity. They're not going to be left wondering what a rundown is. We talked last week about how Leviticus asks and answers a question. How can an unholy people, these people who are a mess, how can they relate to a holy God? How can this imperfect people live with a perfect God? That's what Leviticus is resolving for us. And from the outset, we learn that sacrifice is going to be key. There's blood everywhere in these chapters. So many animals dying. It's kind of shocking. So let me try and make some sense of that. When the Israelites sin, that's them pushing God away. They're now distant from God and they've been made unclean and they've built up this debt towards God. So to reconcile with him, to reconnect with him, they need to be able to pay the debt. They need to make atonement. And since being separated from God is a life and death matter, like God is the source of life. If you're separated from the source of life, you've got nothing left but death. Since being separated from God is a life and death matter, 
God declares to them that an acceptable form of payment is life. They can sacrifice animals to pay the debt and make atonement for themselves. This is a big part of how they make themselves holy. And if it feels costly, if you're reading and thinking about all these animals and it feels costly to you, it's supposed to. It's supposed to feel costly because sin is costly. But they aren't just going to sacrifice animals casually or willy-nilly, always wondering, was that enough? Was that enough? Was that enough? No, God is specific with them because he's removing their ambiguity. So once the tabernacle is set up, once the big tent is set up that God is going to live in, every morning and every evening, sacrifices are made to God on behalf of the people. But Leviticus doesn't talk about those sacrifices. And these, these opening chapters, they aren't the sacrifices that are being mentioned. In Leviticus 1-7, to God talks about five different sacrifices that individuals can make on their own behalf so that each of them can relate confidently to God. So what I want to do is just really quickly run through seven chapters by explaining each of these five offerings, each of these five sacrifices. The first offering comes up in chapter 1, and it's often called the burnt offering. To make this offering, someone brings an animal, a live animal, to be sacrificed. This animal has to have no defect, no blemish, because it's symbolizing being valuable, perfect, innocent. And the person that brings the animal puts their hand on the animal's head, symbolizing that they are associating themselves with the animal. The animal becomes their representative now. Its life will be given on behalf of their life. Then, with the help of the priest, the person sacrifices the animal, and the whole sacrifice is burnt down to ashes on the altar. So I kept burning all night. In other sacrifices, the priest and the person bringing the sacrifice get to share some of the animal, but not in the burnt offering. In this offering, God gets it all. It all ends up on the altar. It's all burnt down to ashes. God gives three different options for what kind of animal someone could bring. It could be a bull. That's like the platinum package. Or it could be a goat or a sheep, which is a bit cheaper. Or the cheapest option would be like a pigeon or a dove. By giving options, God is trying to make this offering affordable for anyone. I hope you're wondering something now. Why would you give the bull? Why wouldn't you go for the cheapest option possible? Why wouldn't you just offer the pigeon? And if you're wondering that, you're starting to get your head into what this sacrifice is actually about. Because I've got a better question than why not do the cheapest option. Why make this offering at all? Because here's the thing about the burnt offering. It's voluntary. There's no command that you have to give this offering. You don't have to make this sacrifice. It's completely voluntary. The burnt offering was an opportunity to voluntarily declare to God that this person bringing the offering wants to be devoted to him. They burned down the whole animal They eat none of it because they want to be wholeheartedly devoted to God. They were saying in this offering, God, I want to worship you. I want to be devoted to you. The burnt offering is about reverence. 
The second offering is the grain offering. No animal this time. People make cakes out of flour and oil, mix in a bit of incense, and then they offer these to God at the tabernacle. The priest gets some of the grain in this case as well. Again, it's a voluntary offering. It's not required. It's optional. It was an offering to express gratitude for God's blessings. The grain offering is about giving God recognition for what he's done. The third offering is the one we just had read for us. It's often called the fellowship offering or the peace offering. And I think this one is my favorite, or at least the implications of this one are my favorite. The person brings an animal, but unlike with the burnt offering, not all the animal ends up on the altar. Some of the animal goes to God, it goes on the altar. We're told that the the fat, the kidneys, some of the liver, the fat of the tail, they all go on the altar. The breast and the right thigh, that goes to the priest and his family to eat. But if you're like dividing up an animal right now, you realize that leaves like three quarters of the animal, right? And that three quarters of the animal is left for the person making the offering. But how is a person going to eat three quarters of a cow on their own? And now getting to the point of this offering, because this offering isn't for just the individual. Now what follows is a communal meal. This is how someone prepares for a party. This offering is to kickstart a celebration. But if you want to throw a party, why would you first like, come to the priest and sacrifice the animal there? Because you want to invite God to the party. Because you want to eat a meal with the family and friends you love and with the God who loves you. The fellowship offering is about wanting to be friends with God. It's about inviting him into your inner circle. It's about relationship. The fourth offering is the sin offering or the purification offering. It's got kind of two different purposes. It's the sacrifice someone offers to pay the debt for an unintentional sin or because they've become ritually unclean. We're going to talk about ritual uncleanness in two weeks, so you don't need to understand that yet if you're not familiar with it. But for now, an example of this offering is when Joseph and Mary have baby Jesus uh, and they go to the temple and they make a sacrifice of a pigeon. They're doing this kind of offering. Or when Jesus heals a man with leprosy and he tells him to go and make the purification sacrifice required by the law of Moses. That's this offering. This sacrifice expressed a desire to either repent or be in right standing with God. The fifth offering is often called the guilt offering. Unlike the other sacrifices, there's only one animal you can offer here. You have to sacrifice a ram. People were expected to make this offering when they'd accrued a debt before God or when they'd accrued a debt with somebody else. And it expressed repentance and a desire to make restitution, to to make up for something. Again and again, we're told that each is a sacrifice that will please God. As the animal or grain burns on the altar, we're told that this creates a pleasing aroma for the Lord. And if we're not reading carefully, it's easy to come away with the impression that God just loves blood and sacrifice. We might come away with the impression that God just loves rituals. And the Israelites definitely make this mistake. 
They fooled themselves into thinking as long as they were making sacrifices, then things would be good between them and God. That's all they need to do. As long as they were going through the rituals, going through the motions, everything's fine. But look at what God says to the people of Israel in the book of Isaiah. He says, What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. It's an idea that comes up again and again in the Old Testament. Even though God commands these sacrifices, and even though the Israelites follow God's instructions about these sacrifices to the letter of the law, it's not enough. Why not? Later in Isaiah, God says, These people come near to me with their mouths and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. The sacrifices are meaningless if there's no heart behind them. The sacrifices are supposed to symbolize something. They're supposed to point to a different reality. The blood, the mess, the cost is supposed to make the Israelites feel something because God isn't obsessed with barbecues. God wants reverence. He wants recognition. He wants relationship. He wants repentance and restitution. He wants a people to be devoted to him just like he is devoted to them. God wants their hearts. This is David in Psalm 51. He says, You do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. God wants their hearts. These were sacrifices for each Israelite to make because God wanted a relationship with each of them. For each Israelite, God wanted their heart. I think this is the timeless truth we can take from the first seven chapters of Leviticus. Just as God wanted the hearts of the Israelites, God wants our hearts too. God wants your heart. Let's look again at those five summary words I used for the offerings. Reverence. Recognition. Relationship, repentance, restitution. God wants your heart. And when you look at those words, would you say that God has your heart? Are we approaching God with reverence or with indifference? Are we offering God our gratitude or just our attitude when things aren't going well? Are we inviting him in or leaving him out? Are we humbly seeking his forgiveness or just taking his forgiveness as a given? I looked at these words this week and I asked myself which I thought I was excelling in and which I thought I might be struggling in. And if you're doing the same right now, And maybe you're starting to have the same thought that I did. Maybe, like me, you're realizing that 
you're not so good at giving God your heart. Maybe half-hearted devotion is more apt than whole-hearted devotion. Maybe you're realizing that just like the Israelites, you need a sacrifice made on your behalf too. You need a sacrifice to be made on your behalf too. And so God made one for us. But instead of requiring a perfect animal to die in our place, God gave his son to die in our place. Jesus was reverent to God on our behalf. He was grateful on our behalf. He was relational on our behalf. He was repentant on our behalf. He made restitution on our behalf. Jesus was wholeheartedly devoted to God on our behalf, holding back nothing, not even his life. And now our debt is always paid in full. And our devotion and worship are always acceptable to God, however imperfect. A pleasing aroma to him, despite the blemishes. But God still wants our hearts. However imperfect our hearts might be, he still wants them. He doesn't want to be taken for granted. He doesn't want to be forgotten, ignored or dismissed. He still wants a people devoted to him just as he is devoted to them. And so God tells us clearly in that passage Shannon read for us from Romans 12. He tells us clearly with no ambiguity that if we want a real relationship with him, in view of his mercies, in view of everything he's given us in Jesus, the way to respond is to offer our bodies, our hearts, our lives back to him as a living sacrifice. God wants your heart. He wants you wholeheartedly devoted to him, just as he has been wholeheartedly devoted to you. He wants your heart. Are you willing to give it to him? Let's pray. Lord God, I look at these words, words like reverence and recognition and relationship, and I realize how often I shortchange you, how regularly I go halfway at best. And I bet there's a lot of other people here tonight feeling that too. And so we thank you so much for Jesus. We see how necessary he is for us. We realize we could do nothing worthy of you in our own strength. We thank you so much that you provided the sacrifice for us. We thank you so much that our debt is always paid in full. God, we thank you that you still want us. And you still accept us as we are because of Jesus. You've been so merciful, so gracious to us. And we pray as we ponder that grace again that you would be transforming us here at St. Matt's more and more and more to be a people of grace, 
in a place of grace. For our good, for the good of the people of West Pennant Hills and surrounds, and for the glory of your name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to this week's sermon. St. Matt's West Penn Hills 6pm congregation is a collection of people who want to be changed by Jesus, to have a deeper connection with God, deeper community with one another and deeper concern for our world. We'd love you to join us on a Sunday soon. For all the details, check out our website at stmatts.org.au and be sure to subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss a sermon.